We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, as always, is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Hey, good evening. And by phone, we're lucky to have once again Taipei-based contract reporter Ralph Jennings. Ralph, good to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me, Keith. Good to be back. Today on the show, we got a whole lot of news to cover. Uh, some of it will just be running through at breakneck speed. Uh, first up, we got a transitional justice bill, which is making progress in the legislature, but is also stirring up controversy as it does so. We'll take a look at that. And of course, President Tsai Ing-wen is leaving for a straight trip to Panama in Paraguay. Uh, she left earlier today, so we'll be given an update on that as well. Then in the second half, Cambodia is the latest country deporting ROC citizens to China over telecom fraud charges. Is this just Kenya all over again, or is there more going on here? We'll take a look at that, and we'll round out the program taking an extended look at an environmental disaster unfolding in Vietnam that many are blaming on a Taiwanese company. I will be getting the view from Vietnam on that controversy. Uh, but first, the strike is on for China Airlines flight attendants. We've been hearing about this for a while. Uh, but last night, around 8 p.m., members of the Taoyuan Flight Attendance Union began an occupation of Nanjing East Road right in front of the Taipei branch headquarters of China Airlines. Uh, they were later joined by other activists uh, and eventually uh, blocked traffic on one whole side of the road. So uh, quite a sizable protest. We didn't necessarily know that this was going to come last night. We thought uh, we were told originally that this might come considerably later. Uh, but let's back up even to the decision to strike. Uh, now, Gavin, this was a decision that was made uh, just after June 7th when negotiations between the union and uh, China Airlines broke down. Why did they break down? Yeah, this is the Taoyuan Flight Attendants Union. Union, which is its members are in China Airlines. Its members are also in Ever Airways as well. It's not just a China Airlines union, mm-hmm. although its its members have gone out on strike, of course. Um, anyway, of course, as you said, talks with China Airlines broke down on June the seventh. Now the union was seeking the airline. The airline made some changes. The airline basically said we're going to cut subsidies for for employees on their duty over, who are posted overseas and who do long-distance flights, and we're going to differentiate between flight attendants who work on long-distance flights and regional flights. China Airlines also moved to cut the number of annual days off that the flight attendants have and gave them more working days, theoretically. But the one that really irked them, or it, it does seem to be the one that irks them, it's the one that's getting all the um, media attention here, the China Airlines company made a decision to make all flight attendants clock into work at Taoyuan International Airport instead of Taipei's Songshan Airport. So you fly into Songshan and you've got to go all the way over to Taoyuan. Or you wake up in Taipei to go to work mm. and you don't go to work to Songshan Airport. You have to go all the way to Taoyuan Airport to clock in whether you're being sent back to Songshan to get on an aeroplane and work the desk or whether you're staying mm-hmm. at Taoyuan International to stay at the desk. And that's at least an hour travel it's between the travel, two. But of course the subsidies for the flight attendants on regional and international flights, and of course the days off, more working days. This all compounded to irk the union, and on Tuesday of this week, its members basically wrapped up a vote, 
And, well, they voted in favour of strike action. And at midnight last night, the strike action began with some 2,000 members of the flight attendants union walking off the job. An interesting thing is China Airlines employs some 3,000 flight attendants. So this is obviously a majority of the airline's flight attendants have gone on strike. Right. It does uh, seem to, at least from the outside, enjoy uh, pretty broad support within the union, uh, although uh, union leadership did threaten those who did not support the strike. In a typical union fashion, they basically yeah. said, you basically the, the union, the flight attendants union, called on the flight attendants to to give in, turn in their employee cards, their passports, and also their China travel permits. And the union official has been quoted as saying this was to ensure that the members of our union join the strike and report to a picket line outside China Airlines' office in Taipei. Hmm. Uh, there has been reports, and uh, members of the union haven't been directly quoted about this, but there has been reports saying that the union warned its members that those who fail to support the strike action will have their membership revoked. All right, so that is what this has looked like all the way up until uh, yesterday evening when the strike began, just to give everybody a sense of the context here. Uh, But now let's turn our focus to the events as they unfolded last night. And uh, to bring us that, I spoke earlier with Brian Hugh. Uh, He is the founding editor at New Bloom, uh, which is a publication bringing stories about Taiwan news uh, to audiences around the world. Uh, Now, Brian has been on the scene uh, since the strike began last night. He was there through the night. Uh, I spoke to him earlier today uh, to get his sense uh, on what he witnessed as the events unfolded. So uh, here's some of that conversation with Brian Hugh. All right. So uh, let's just start things off by uh, the whole action started around 8 p.m. Tell us how it got started and uh, what the scene was like as it got going. So when it began, it wasn't very clear what kind of event it was. They called press over and there were many union members there. But it wasn't very clear to people that were there that it would be kind of an action or they would take the streets. But then it grew because people started hearing about it. And, you know, there are there a lot of union members there. And kind of youth activists started coming out. So that built up like the critical numbers needed to take the streets. And eventually, yeah, I ended up taking one side of uh, Nanjing East Road. And uh, so you were out there with the protesters all night, uh, kind of observing what was going on. Uh, I've seen reports that, you know, people were kind of in there for the long haul. They brought tents. They brought chairs. Uh, they were really uh, prepared for this. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the scene looked like as the night progressed. So that happened about one hour in that they started to take over the streets. Uh, people were standing in front of the office. And they started to saw the sidewalks. And then suddenly, you know, people just started, they just went out into the street. And then uh, before I knew it, they, someone had set up a, a pretty large tent. Um, another, and there's more equipment being brought, um, fans, you know, generators, uh, chairs, uh, even a truck brought in, you know, restrooms. That happened very quickly, portable restrooms. So they were prepared, and it was probably planned beforehand. Um, but it's also very impressive how it went down so fast and so smoothly. Hmm. Uh, was there a strong police presence uh, through the night? I was surprised there wasn't more police. There only seemed to be about 20 that kind of went in front of the entrance to the China Airlines office. But otherwise, they hung off to the side and there were extremely low numbers. Um, as the night went on, there was actually, despite the fact there were such huge numbers, there's no real fear of the place kind of evicting people. That didn't seem like a concern because they, they just never were there in such numbers. And as the night unfolded, uh, you know, it wasn't just... Uh, the China Airlines employees that were taking part on this, there were a number of other activists that were attracted as well. Yeah, that's right. So the usual suspects of, you know, youth activism and civil society came out, such as the third parties, um, you know, the Social Democratic Party and the New Power Party, politicians from both both of those. 
Um, and there are also some other unions, um, some other airline unions, you know, all of their kind of competitors to uh, China Airlines, as people mentioned, in terms of, like, you know, their companies. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the first strike of its kind for the industry, so that sets a precedent for other labor unions in the airline industry. And there's been a lot of talk recently of uh, Evergreen that they don't allow unions, that's, that's not allowed, and, you know, now there's kind of interest in pushing against that. Uh, and there was another appearance that was quite interesting. Uh, KMT chairperson Hong Xiu Ju uh, also arrived on the scene. Yeah, that was interesting because that came at around 2 a.m. And it was unannounced. Uh, she appeared without warning with a few people and just kind of toured the site briefly, uh, took a few photos, and then left. Um, I couldn't actually get close enough because she was surrounded by press to hear what she was saying. But she later re- uh, released a, sta- a statement on Facebook, kind of vaguely expressing support of it. Um, I mean, she evidently did want to go there to make it a photo op. Um, it's, I think it was an invitation of Feynman's visit to the Ministry of Education last August, which also occurred at a late night hour. It's interesting, though, that, you know, that the issue became spotlight so fast that a former presidential candidate and the chairperson of the KMT would, would come on the first night. Mm. Uh, and she came ostensibly uh, in, in a supportive role. Was she, you know, stating her support for the protest? I think so. Or I think that, you know, she wants to kind of get in with the youth activist culture um, in some sense to try to co-opt them. So, you know, she wants to come off as not so remote and, you know, distant from the youth or these kind of popular actions. Mm. Um, and also supportive of labor. But, you know, I think it's I think that's, that's the main reason, you know, because the KMT is so cut off from the support base. It's an attempt to try to win it over. And uh, very, very lastly, I mean, what w- what are the odds that you expect this to snowball into a, a, a broader political movement uh, that goes beyond, uh, and we've already touched on some of the areas it might go into, but uh, that goes beyond, you know, specifically uh, the disagreement between uh, the union and uh, China Airlines? The interesting thing is that I didn't expect this to happen at all. I thought that the big action would actually be on Saturday. There's a Saturday action that's planned on Saturday night. Um, by some of the youth activists, more regarding issues of free trade. So depending on, I mean, this this will definitely get brought up there when that happens, because, you know, this whole stuff will go on. I don't know if this will still be going on then, but, you know, there's also the possibility that this will all tie together. Um, I mean, you know, labor is one of, it's not an issue that in the past few years among youth activists is central. You know, for example, uh, land land issues are a big deal, for example, in Miaoli, or, you know, nuclear energy is a big deal. But labor, labor hasn't really been one of the, the big things before the Sunflower Movement. But it does seem like there are a lot more young people now. And, you know, the union, actually, the union members are very young, uh, most of them, it looks like. So I can see definitely working together with the in general and, you know, broader political issues. All right. So that was uh, my conversation with Brian Hugh. Once again, he is a founding editor at New Bloom. Uh, so, uh, Gavin, that gives us a little bit of the flavor from last night. What it, What's happening to air traffic? Well, air traffic today on China Airlines is pretty much non-existent. The airline cancelled 67 flights from 6 a.m. this morning to 10 o'clock this evening. Those flights were leaving from Taoyuan International and Sungshan Airport in Taipei. That's 67 flights, and apparently the airline is saying that 20,000 passengers were affected. Hmm. Apparently, some flights from Kaohsiung and Tainan were not affected by the strike. Okay. Uh, now, Ralph, uh, taking a look at all of this, uh, we heard there Brian uh, talking at some length about uh, organized labor in Taiwan and how this is uh, the very first time that uh, Cal employees have staged a strike like this. Uh, so a momentous moment uh, in labor relations in Taiwan. Uh, what do you see uh, from all of this? 
I see it as being a really unusual case. As I saw the news developing through press releases over the past month or so, I was thinking to myself, could this really possibly happen in Taiwan? Because I don't associate this place with um, a pro-union, pro-labor approach to, to work at all. As you probably know, it's hard to find a good job, and once you find one, you do everything it takes to please the boss. If that means working until 11 p.m. and starting the next day at 7, that's what people do. So when I heard about the strike, I, I was uh, incredulous about it. Um, but I'm also really happy that these that the employees apparently will, uh, once things are settled, they can, in theory, go back to work. So there is that, that protection, um, if, if, uh, if I understand the, the laws properly and if they're followed. Mm. Let's uh, let's take a look at the politics of all this. Of course, Brian was telling us there that uh, none other than KMT Chairman Hong Xiuju uh, made a little visit to the strikers yesterday evening. He's saying that she's uh, perhaps uh, trying to co-opt the the striking movement, get in good with uh, labor. Uh, is this going to be a challenge uh, for the Thai administration going forward? Uh, I mean, is this basically organized labor in Taiwan moving the goalpost uh, quite a bit, let's say, to the left? Uh, and, and is she going to have to respond by perhaps changing some of uh, her policies or her approach to uh, industry and labor? I think the, the, the change in policy has been, has been coming along already. We've heard uh, Tsai Ing-wen say during her campaign and during the inauguration she wants to do much more for, for, for labor, uh, for people who aren't being paid well and aren't being treated well on the job. So in, in, in this way, because this, this may be a catalyst for her to push through that policy. Um, ho- however, I did see a statement from the president's office saying that she hopes the, the two sides will work it out themselves, and it may be unclear to a lot of Taiwanese who aren't familiar with this, but uh, usually in a labor dispute, the company and the employees sort it out themselves, and um, you're not supposed to get the government involved. Although in this case, uh, China Airlines, uh, you know, the Ministry of Transportation does have uh, a controlling stake in it, so there, uh, th- there is going to be some government involvement. I think the Ministry of Transport, of course, said it would help mediate earlier this week. It didn't say it was going to step in. It just said it would help mediate between the two sides. Mm. And it happens where China Airlines just has a new chairman, of course, appointed by the government. But, but, but yesterday. Was that yesterday? He was appointed yesterday, yes. Yeah. Her Nguyen Xuan was appointed yesterday as the new chairman of China Airlines. Obviously not a very good time to take a job, really. It was like, well, I don't want that job. No, I'll have it next week, maybe. Next week. I can't start. I'm going on holiday now. That's I'm a, busy. That's a bad first day at work. It is a bad first day. He, he was appointed yesterday. The premier okayed it, rubber stamped it, and he starts his. he literally actually starts his job today mm. if he can get into the office yeah probably no advisable if he doesn't go to the office today but yeah, he, i think i'm gonna work from home guys or he go on holiday take some <laughs> sick leave or something yeah but he basically came out yesterday and he said that he will handle the strike as his first job as he has to do basically and it reports also say that he has suggested that china airlines and the ministry of transport both work together and they simply accept the union's demands for at least change the mandatory location where the um, flight attendants have to return to have to report to work. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, as we're sitting here now when we're recording this show, China Airlines management has not responded to that request. Apparently, 
Right. All right. So uh, it definitely does seem like the tide is on the side of the union in a lot of ways, uh, at least on that particular issue. Um, Before we leave this entirely, uh, of course, Tsai Ing-wen left on her trip, her very first international state visit of her uh, presidency so far, and she mentioned uh, the strike. Well, she had to. She was flying on China Airlines. Hard not to bring that up. Yeah, basically. Yeah, China Airlines has a special aircraft of the head of state here. And... China Airlines and the presidential office, we were aware of this possible strike a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, preparations were made by the airline to ensure that basically size charter plane, which happens to be a Boeing 777-300ER. Apparently it comes uh, strike-proof. That's part of the package. It has a 19-member crew, which includes Mm -hmm. five pilots and 14 flight attendants. Mm -hmm. Now, one of these flight attendants has been quoted today in Taiwan's media as saying that the nine-day state visit will not be affected because of the strike and... Basically, they're not considered to be breaking the picket line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The, you know, this obviously the union understands that this flight has to go ahead. The president gets a pass. The president is getting a pass. Also, interestingly enough, yesterday Tsai actually came out and said she supports the workers for actually taking action and striking. Mm. If they have grievances, it's their legal right to do so, and she has no problem with it. But she said her government will help solve the problem to ensure that, of course, China Airlines is Taiwan's flagship carrier. Mm -hmm. And basically, she said, let's hope we solve the problem with sincerity on both sides. Uh, All right. So uh, certainly going to be hearing a lot more about that story as it unfolds. Uh, Before we get to the break, because we need to uh, head to break soon, we got one other big story this week that uh, we'd like to cover. This one also involves the president in that it involves some of her uh, pledges made during the campaign, that being pledges to carry out a program of transitional justice. That program uh, moved forward this week as draft legislation on transitional justice passed out of committee, uh, but not without sparking pretty significant protests. Uh, Before we get to the controversy here, Gavin, very quickly, what was in this bill? What kind of transitional justice uh, would occur if this bill were to be passed? This was a a legislative committee, so it's not in the chamber. It was debated at a committee level in the Mm -hmm. legislature, and a committee or... Well, let's say 80% of the committee, because some of the committee walked out in disgust because they couldn't deal with it. Mm-hmm. Other members of the committee refused to listen to what was going on. But 80% of the committee basically said, OK, we'll pass this transitional justice bill, which will cover wrongdoings to Taiwanese people from 1945 to 1990. Mm-hmm. Basically the era of martial law. Right. Now... And they're calling for investigations, essentially. They want investigations into basically illegal trials, people Mm -hmm. that were sent to prison, people that were persecuted. They want all this information out. They're also calling for some, or some, I think they're calling for all government files from this era to be made public. Basically, all these files should be put in the public domain. And uh, I, I believe also uh, martial law era symbols, they're going to try to get rid of those in you know public locations. Well, that's, it's, uh, that's a very small matter. Right. There's, and there's not many martial law symbols anywhere in Taiwan anymore anyway. So that's, that's be here or there, really, isn't it? I presume they're talking about statues in universities and schools when mm-hmm. they say that. They, right. that's, that's the big thing there. Right. But then the controversy comes on two fronts. Uh, first, uh, let's deal with the KMT criticism of this. Well, they walked out of the meeting. They were, they were the 20% that left the meeting, basically, this week. And they complained that, hey, it's targeting us because we were in power then. Right. 
Uh, so, yeah, it seems uh, from their perspective, Taylor made to go after the KMT specifically. Uh, and then the other front being the uh, Aboriginals. Of exactly. Course. They were a bit irked as well, the poor Aboriginals, because they basically said, hey, look, OK, you start in 1945 and you finish in 1990. That's fair enough. But hang on a minute. Our indigenous people's land was actually taken by Japanese before 1945. Mm -hmm. So when do we get our justice? When do we get to see the paperwork? Or more importantly, will or when, if and how, will we get our land back? Right. So basically saying, you know, if we're going to look at historical injustices, there were some... Plenty of historical injustices uh, prior to 1945. Prior to 1945. While, while of course, the the KMT continued, the state continued to occupy and hold the land taken by the Aboriginals after 1945 when the KMT came here. The KMT didn't take the land. Someone else took the land is Mm. their argument on that one. Right. So uh, supporters of the bill are, are, are basically saying that uh, these are very separate issues. They uh, will require uh, very different approaches. Uh, of course, when we're talking about land and investigating who has you know, authority over the land, who has a right to the land, uh, that is a totally different skill set from looking into uh, specific human rights abuses and, and, and breaches of international law. So very, uh, they're arguing that these two things should be dealt with separately. Uh, Ralph, uh, you know, observing all of this, uh, do you think that uh, transitional justice is uh, something that is actually going to be able to be dealt with, uh, or or is all this controversy really going to bog it down? I go back to something I believe you said earlier, which is that this is something Tsai Ing-wen talked about during her campaign. It is a a pledge that, in fact, unifies various unspoken factions within the party. The one thing they all agree with the DPP is that they don't like the KMT and they should go get them. Yeah, so that's what they need to do something to make good on that that pledge and to keep the, the everybody in the party happy. Uh, and so to what extent they're able to achieve things may be less important just than the fact that they achieve something. Hmm. Um, as far as what they can actually do... Um, yeah, you can always, as Gavin said, you can always move some statues around their schools, there are monuments, and they may, may end up doing some of that. Um, the Aboriginal side of things is going to be much, much harder. Uh, other presidents have tried to have looked around at the possibility of autonomy for some of the, the Aborigine groups here. They've designated, tried to save their languages and um, given them some legs up in terms of finding jobs in cities. Um, I don't know what else they can do um, that would be politically popular and, in fact, feasible from an administrative point of view. Um, but I really think that as long as there's a, you know, a couple of things they can come up with and show for this transitional justice, the party will be happy. And I'm not so sure that the Taiwanese public is really gunning for this. I think they support transitional justice in, in spirit, but they have, they're worried about far, far different things, such as whether they're being paid a fair wage and the kind of things that the China Airlines people are fighting about. Hmm. So, yeah, some of the controversy here has always been uh, what is the motivation for transitional justice? Of course, the DPP is insisting uh, that they really just want to uh, achieve justice and and wrestle with historical wrongs. Uh, It sounds like you're pretty convinced that uh, the underlying motivation for the majority of uh, the political actors here uh, is really just retribution uh, between parties. It's it's been that way for a long time. Um, And 
surely the KMT went after Chen Shui-bian after Mainzhou got into power, so that added to their added fuel to their fire. That you know, when you're in power, you should go after the the other people, and so they're doing that now. Um, but I I do recall from interviews over the years that the DPP draws from so many different types of people and so many um, you know causes and elements in the Taiwan society. In order to do things to make them all happy, they do they have to go back to their common cause, which is anti-KMT. All right. Well, uh, we are going to have to leave that conversation there because we are coming up on a break. When we return, are we having deja vu? Uh, the Kenyan deportation story is now unfolding in Cambodia. Uh, should we expect to see more of this as China widens its fight against international telephone fraud? Uh, and we'll close the show out with a extended look at an environmental disaster in Vietnam that may implicate Taiwan industry. All of that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Ralph Jennings. Uh, so Cambodia now. Add that to the list of countries where you don't want to be committing telecom fraud. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, announced earlier this week that uh, 18 Taiwanese that have been kind of swept up in uh, fraud investigations in Cambodia are very likely about to be deported to China by the end of this week. Uh, of course, this kind of uh, has echoes of the controversy surrounding uh, similar deportations from Kenya uh, in May. Uh, but Gavin, tell us a little bit about uh, what's going on with this one in particular. I mean, those arrests were made pretty recently, just about a week ago. There's, there was two sets of arrests. Apparently 14 of the ROC nationals were arrested during raids on places where telecoms fraud was suspected of being taking place. And several other, three other ROC nationals were arrested as they were leaving the airport in Phnom Penh. They claimed at the time, the three that were arrested at the airport said they'd been gambling. They'd been on a holiday. But they had mm. a holiday in Cambodia, mm-hmm. basically. But the authorities didn't believe this. and they, It seems to be a go-to cover story. It was a good song by the Dead Kennedys as well, but we're not <laughs> talking about that. Because basically they got arrested and thrown into the fraud people. They said, you're mm. lying, you're with these guys, we're chucking you all in the hole and we're going to leave you here until we know what to do with you. Anyway, basically what happened was the Cambodian government said, yes, we're probably going to deport you to China. Yes, we are going to deport you to China. And apparently a Cambodian official has been quoted as saying that we decided to deport the ROC nationals to China because we adhere to the One China policy, which means that basically there's only one China and Taiwan and China are the same entity. Cambodia, of course, having very close links uh, to China being a, a close international partner. Yeah, lots of money as well. Lots of Chinese money there. That too, yeah. And there has been reports that Beijing was pressuring Phnom Penh Mm -hmm. to send them back there. Now, there's still, as far when we're recording this show, they're still in Phnom Penh in detention, Mm -hmm. the 17 ROC nationals. And apparently uh, diplomats, uh, ROC diplomats that were in Vietnam have been paying visits to Phnom Penh trying to sort this all out. But apparently they haven't actually met any of them. Mm -hmm. The Taiwan Commercial Association in Cambodia says it it made every effort Mm -hmm. to meet with them, but it hasn't been allowed to, basically. Right. Okay, so, uh, Ralph, I guess the only question here is, uh, is this anything new? I mean, should we look at this as anything different from uh, the Kenya experience, or is it basically uh, this, this, the same facts uh, all over again? On paper, you're seeing the same facts all over again. In other words, the, there's a, a crime ring 
some kind of fraud, telephone or Internet, involving Taiwanese and Chinese. China got in there before Taiwan could. Pressures the government to do to follow the so-called One China policy and send the people back. Um, I think there's a big difference this time, though, which is that Taiwan is used to it. Uh, they've seen this in Kenya. They've seen this in Malaysia. Uh, there have been, you know, murmurings about a case in Indonesia, even one in Uganda. So here, this time, the uh, foreign ministry was surprisingly uh, nonchalant about the whole thing. They really didn't have much to say except to confirm the facts. And as you mentioned, that the uh, Taiwanese representative tried to intervene but could not. But there wasn't the same, the, there wasn't the, the vitriol and the outrage and the demands that we heard in April from the Ma government when this happened before. And I understand from interviews that the Justice Ministry here, their big priority now is to figure out how widespread this problem is, how many mm. countries, how many people, how much more are we looking at. And mm -hmm. they are working with the other governments that may be inadvertently harboring these people. They may work with China, as they said that they would do before. Um, and I think that the priority has shifted to just kind of a more macro level, right. more global effort to right. see well, what's going on. And if they do get more involved in the prosecution here, then they may have a little bit more say as to uh, where these ROC nationals are deported to, because I think one of uh, China's uh, main complaints has been that, uh, you know, w when uh, Taiwan uh, in the past has uh, been given custody of uh, these fraud suspects, uh, they've gone free, and they, they actually haven't received the punishments that China would expect. That's one of the problems. That's the difference between a democracy and a communist state. In Taiwan, the courts need to follow due process. They often don't have evidence uh, to prosecute because these scams are, are based in another country, so you're relying on the other country to provide things to you. And so the laws here have to let you go at, at a certain point if you can't make the case stand up. Whereas in China, you know, it's, you're, you're guilty of charge and they do, what you, they do what they want with you. I would have thought the government could actually use this in their favor. Get caught in a telecoms fraud scam, go to prison in China. I think, yeah, I think it's totally outsourcing the problem. <laughs> and of course it saves us taxpayers money. Pe right. People have been making that point. There have been a couple people making that point. Uh, all right. Well, uh, on, on that cheery note, uh, we're solving problems on the on the show today. Uh, well, as we solve that problem, uh, we're going to have to uh, leave that story and go to our final story for today, for the broadcast anyway, that being, uh, well, for months now, a massive number of dead fish and sea life uh, have been washing up on the coasts of central Vietnam. It's a, a huge environmental disaster uh, impacting the fishing industry over there, has a lot of people upset now, what does it have to do with Taiwan? Well, allegations began swirling fairly early on uh, that the reason for the disaster uh, has to do with discharges from a steel mill constructed by the Formosa Plastics Group. Uh, so that may be to blame. Uh, until recently, though, this story has been largely ignored in Taiwan. But this week, uh, protests spilled over as Vietnamese migrant workers took their protest to a hotel where uh, a Formosa Plastics Group board meeting was taking place in Taipei. Uh, and then a little bit later in the week, uh, Taiwanese legislators began calling for a probe into the possible involvement of the Formosa Plastics Group. So uh, it's now well within the view of uh, the Taiwanese public. Uh, people are thinking about this. People are talking about this. Uh, just right off the bat, Gavin, uh, tell us a little bit about the Formosa Plastics Group. Uh, they have something of a record of getting involved in these uh, environmental scandals. 
They've got a rather lengthy record of getting involved in environmental scandals, both here and abroad. The biggest one abroad, bar the current one in Vietnam, actually happened in about 2009, between 2009 and 2012 in Texas, Point Comfort, Texas. There we go. Where the Formosa Plastics Corporation Texas and the Formosa Plastics Corporation Louisiana were forced to spend more than 10 million US dollars on pollution controls to address air, water and hazardous waste violations at their plant in Texas. Mm. So kind of primed to uh, expect that they might have some uh, involvement there. Well, you know, they, they, do, they do make plastics. They make, have nat for cracker plants. And, of course, nat for mm-hmm. cracker plants and various other things they do aren't very environmentally friendly. They're invariably getting into trouble in Taiwan over their nat for cracker plant in Yunlin County in the south, which has faced allegations of being one of the main causes of air pollutants in recent years. All right. So uh, that is all by way of introducing one of the major characters in this unfolding story. Uh, To get the view, though, from Vietnam, we are uh, welcoming onto the show for the very first time Yang Nguyen. Uh, She is the editor and chief of Loa, which is a weekly podcast covering uh, current affairs in Vietnam. Yang, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So let's just start at the very beginning of all of this. Uh, I think we're a bit behind covering this, but there is quite a bit of backstory that we need to kind of get caught up on. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. And how did Formosa Plastics uh, originally get implicated in all this? Uh, well, Keith, so this happened, this started on April 6th. This is when uh, local fishermen and uh, fish farmers in four central provinces noticed the first sightings of dead fish that washed ashore as well as uh, at their farms. And uh, as the media report and a lot of people began paying attention to the story, a local diver uh, was uh, interviewed by uh, the Laodong newspaper. And he said actually uh, two days before the first sightings of dead fish, he discovered these, uh, these wastewater water pipes coming out of the Bungang economic zone, which is where the Formosa steel plant uh, is located in Hatin province in the central uh, coast. So uh, he saw this, uh, these wastewater pipes, he dived down there, he saw not a single fish swimming around the area. So he was very afraid and he began alerting uh, local authorities and he said the wastewater pipes uh, basically coming out of that zone, uh, discharged muddy yellow water, and he felt very itchy and uh, it was hard to breathe. So so this is how the uh, connection between Formosa uh, came to light. Uh, of course, there's no uh, evidence of that, but there was one very damning comment from a Formosa spokesman uh, by the name of Chu Chun Fan. Uh, he made this during an interview with uh, local media, VTC14, and the reporter presented him with this observation that there were no marine life to be found, uh, where previously there had been uh, plentiful of you know marine life around this area, uh, not since the arrival of this wastewater treatment system. And his response really ticked off many people, and he said basically that, you know, we told you so, we told local fishermen to uh, change their jobs, and uh, they still keep fishing, so you have to decide, uh, you, do you want to catch fish or shrimp, or do you want to develop the steel industry? You cannot have both. And this comment really, you know, tipped, tipped his hand, and people are angry, and they are basically responding with, I choose fish. Mm. Right, okay, so uh, seen as basically an admission of guilt from uh, many in Vietnam, uh, and what we've seen over the last couple of months, especially in May, uh, was a number of protests uh, that were quickly uh, repressed, I think it would be fair to say, uh, by the Vietnamese government. Tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so um, since uh, these uh, dead fish have washed ashore, there's been a lot of questions, and initially state media basically cast questions on, on Formosa, but there has been no answer and a very uh, inadequate handling of the Vietnamese government. So Vietnamese people are feeling very uncertain, very scared about the fish as well as their um, their food supply, and they have started to uh, protest en masse uh, every Sunday since uh, May 1st, and um, these uh, protests have gotten very large. They're one of some of the largest we've seen, and the participation is very diverse, uh, old people, young people. So the government has uh, started cracking down on them uh, on the more recent ones, uh, very harshly arrested scores of people. They were later de- uh, released. But uh, there has also been a lot of beatings and uh, a few people, a couple people that have gone uh, into the uh, area to uh, report and investigate have also been arrested. So um, so we're seeing a lot of uh, harsh crackdown on these protests. And basically, they have, in recent uh, days, died down somewhat. Mm. Now, give us a sense, uh, where is the anger directed exactly? I mean, I think uh, many people in Taiwan, when they hear uh, about protests in Vietnam, their memory will uh, immediately be triggered by a protest a couple of years ago uh, that were directed against uh, Chinese companies when China, you know, that was sort of stirred up by controversy in the South China Sea. Uh, but then Taiwan companies were sort of caught up in all of that, and a number of Taiwanese companies were vandalized. Um, so where the anger is directed might be a little bit diffuse, might be difficult for us to get a handle on. Is it? Would you say it's directed at the company, Formosa Plastics? Is it directed at the Taiwanese government? Or, or is this more of a domestic issue where people see this as a, a case of a government kind of covering for business? Actually, uh, you know, this is more than business. I think people are distinguishing that this is not the uh, representative of the Taiwanese people, but, uh, you know, there's uh, there are bad p- apples in every crop. This is directed at, uh, at the Formosa executives, uh, one, but also uh, against the Vietnamese officials that are complicit, that are in a way colluding with these form, uh, Formosa executives in uh, allowing this to happen and uh, possibly, you know, making money uh, on the side in, in, uh, in the form of bribes and then looking the other way when uh, disasters like these happen. So uh, we're seeing a lot of these signs on the protest, uh, during the protest saying, you know, we choose fish, but we also we want transparency from the government. So this is directed at the Vietnamese government and the inadequate handling of the local authorities and the national authorities um, in dealing with this crisis, because you have these dead fish. Uh, they're not being picked up. So they're entering the, the food um, supply, the supply chain. And this is affecting people not just in the central provinces, but across the country. Mm. Um, so this is a huge uh, environmental disaster that affects every person. It affects their, you know, their, their rice bowl, their dinner plate. Mm. Right. So very broad ranging consequences there. Uh, now, of course, you mentioned a little bit earlier in this conversation that we don't have any hard evidence 
uh, that could say definitively that uh, Formosa Plastics is definitely to blame here. Uh, but we are expecting in a little bit uh, the results of a government probe. Uh, my understanding is uh, an investigation is ongoing that's supposed to be released at the end of the month. Uh, do you think that uh, the protests that happened earlier this week in Taiwan by uh, Vietnamese migrant workers uh, or uh, some of the statements that were made by the legislative yuan, you know, calling for further investigation, uh, do you think that that will have any effect on what's going on in Vietnam? Well, I have to say I spoke to several people um, that are uh, very uh, engaged with this issue, and they are, first of all, they're welcoming um, these comments and these actions from the Taiwanese lawmakers because uh, it stands in stark contrast to what they have been seeing from the Vietnamese government and uh, the fact that the migrant workers are protesting. You know, they hope that this helps uh, continue to shine a spotlight on the issue because in Vietnam, uh, Initially, we had state media coverage, but now that's being suppressed as well. Uh, so, so they're saying that this, uh, these actions uh, will help, you know, put a lot of uh, pressure on the government to come up with some uh, responses because um, they feel that the government has been very inadequate in handling this uh, this issue and uh, this kind of international media attention. This is what they're working towards because all of these uh, protests have been uh, suppressed and uh, there's been a lot of crackdown. So the tactic that a lot of these activists and a lot of these protesters are now uh, embracing is to go on social media to uh, rally international attention um, to get some kind of resolu- resolution because they're not getting it from the government. Um, so, so this will help in that way. And um, I mentioned earlier that the protests have died down in recent um, weeks. But uh, when I spoke to these um, activists, they say that there will definitely be more protests and they're just waiting for the right time. And perhaps that right time is when the government hopefully will reveal the results of the investigations that they have been conducting for almost more than two months now. Mm. So there will definitely be more action. But what what I have to mention is that, you know, it's not no longer an economic story. So it's going to be very hard for the government to, you know, come up with any kind of answer that will satisfy the people because uh, they're now seeing uh, that, you know, the government is possibly complicit uh, with large corporations like Formosa operating in Vietnam without any kind of oversight, a lot of suspicion on corruption, which has been an ongoing issue in Vietnam. Uh, And now the government showing that it is unable to handle the outcome of such business deals. And then uh, thirdly, that it it has no plan going forward. It has no solution that is sustainable for the people. And uh, as I mentioned, it's not just, you know, 20 people, 20 million people in the uh, central provinces that are affected, but this is an impact across the country. And there's Mm. no ensuring the safety of the food supply, ensuring the safety of the consumers. All right. Well, uh, that was uh, just a little bit of uh, the view from Vietnam on this unfolding story. Uh, We were speaking there uh, to Yang Nguyen. She is the editor-in-chief of Loa. And uh, before I let you go, I do really want to make a point of uh, plugging this podcast. I just uh, discovered it recently, uh, but you guys are doing an excellent job of covering current events in Vietnam. Uh, So I highly recommend it to all of our listeners. Definitely want to go check that out. Uh, Just Google LOA on Google and uh, maybe throw in the word Vietnam and it'll pop right up. So, Young, thank you once again for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much.
All right, so uh, that rounds out that story. And now moving on to our bonus podcast story, uh, a little bit on the lighter end of things for today. Gavin, what do we got? We've got Tai Jong. We're talking about Tai Jong today and the Tai Jong city mayor, Lin Jialong. He got in hot water this week, as did several other city councillors. During a talk, it was, mm-hmm. a, it was a Q&A session, basically, and KMT, she was a KMT city councillor, Zhang Liao Nai Lun. She was talking to the chamber down there in Taijong on internet addiction. Well, she was giving her spiel and she suddenly looked up and realised that, well, most of the people weren't listening to her. Because they were looking at their mobile phones. Ooh, how ironic is how that? Internet ironic. addiction, and they were all looking at their mobile phones. <laughs> and their city councillors. Yes, this caused a bit of a stink because a photograph appeared in one of the, the China <laughs> Times newspaper the next day of mm-hmm. the mayor himself mm-hmm. sitting in the council chamber playing with his nice phone. What do you suppose he was doing at the time? Well, they say that they're do- I don't know. researching. They say they were researching, but of course other politicians in other chambers and other countries have been caught looking at other things on their mm-hmm. mobile devices over the years. So we don't know what they're looking at, but the, the mayor did put his hands up and say, yeah, okay, uh, maybe I shouldn't have been on the phone. Before that happened, though, the K- the KMT city councillor who was giving the spiel about internet addiction got a bit angry and demanded <laughs> that all the city councillors give their phones to the police at the door so they shouldn't be allowed to play with their phones. Some high that, school... That, that was rather draconian, if you ask me. <laughs> She's speaking to a room full of grown adults. people, grown adults. Yeah, yeah. But the mayor did say, OK, I will tell the city councillors in future that if they pick up their mobile phones during city council meetings and hearings and question and answer sessions, I will ensure they only use them for city governance purposes. All right, there we go. Cracking down on all that uh, Angry Birds play that's going on. Uh, Ralph, are you on your phone right now? Quick check. I No, I'm staring at my computer screen. Ah! I prefer the, uh, the, 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 you know, the big keyboard with spaces <laughs> in between the letters. But you're, you're still following through on your internet addiction right now. Oh, yeah, I, I, I confess to that. But I mean, if you, but if, I'm still listening to you, paying attention. Ah, there you go. But if you were, if you were giving, if you were in this Taijong City Council and you were giving a talk on internet addiction and you looked up and saw people playing with their mobile phones, what would your reaction be? I would actually, I support the reaction of the speaker who found it offensive. <laughs> uh, I've, I've given a few speeches here. You know, once in a great while, somebody wants you to speak to their club or a class or something like that. I've done some teaching, and it's really annoying when people break out the phones. They they should know better. It is discourteous. Um, and I don't. I, I think it's. It could be a hard sell, not just because of the addiction, as you call it, uh, but also because uh, even before the phones were on, people were falling asleep during public speeches, or they're talking to somebody next to them. Uh, there seems to be a, a, a widespread acceptance here of just simply uh, doing what you want during a speech if, you, if you're not interested in it. You know what somebody should do uh, to fight, you know, the phone addiction and the always looking at the phone? Somebody should make an app for that. There's got to be some app that could stop us from staring at our phones. I think the app should just, yeah, electrocute you in the eye or something. That'd that be would a work. really keen warning. Or what you could do is, you, this is the Taijong City Council, so they must have a list of phone numbers of everybody in the city council. They should simply send them all a message going, I know you're not listening <laughs> to me, I know you're looking at your phone, so put it away. That or the, the person giving a speech could send um, messages, yeah. broadcast, yeah, messages through that app, so that that, that floods your 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 home screen and disable or whatever else you're doing. There we go. This this show is chock full of ideas. Anybody who's listening, these are free ideas. You can take them to the bank, make them happen. Woo! Getting a lot of work done today, uh, but. 
we will have to round out the show right there. We are done giving away these free ideas. Uh, so that is it. Please do join us again next time. Time when this week broadcasts every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100. Uh, as I said last week, we're going to be broadcasting a little bit earlier than we have in the past, probably a little closer to 8.20 than 8.30. Somewhat depends on the commercial load, uh, but that's when to look for the broadcast show. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, the ICRT blog. Please do rate and review the show on iTunes if you get a chance. It really does help us out. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined in studio by Gavin Phipps. Hey, good night. And by phone, we've got Ralph Jennings. Ralph, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me again. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. <laughs>